Well, good evening. I'm John Bomarito. It's time for another Acoustic Alternatives podcast from Grove Studios in Ypsilanti. Rentable space for musicians, DJs, what have you, podcasters such as myself. Really cool space to check out online. Grove Studios, and big thanks to them for allowing me to do what I do here. And it is a pleasure to welcome back a guest that I haven't had in a studio with me in a couple of years. Because, well, first of all, I haven't been doing a radio show in more than a year. And uh, second of all, it's just been way too long. Leith Elsadi is here. Thanks for having me, John. It's good to be here. Leith, it's good to see you. And, and it's been uh, it's been a weird year for both of us, for sure. Yeah. But uh, the history of what you've done and what you're doing and what you're about to do, all it, whatever's happened in the last year, it's just that's just part of the equation. We'll get we'll get somewhere in there. But uh, I think I have you to thank for my appreciation of blues of any kind. Prior to hearing your music in a studio where I worked. Um, I hadn't really had the appreciation for what you do in that style until I heard you do it. You're, you are like a door opener for me. That's kind of amazing. Thank you. I mean, uh, somebody has to be, right? Uh, yes, yes. And, <laughs> and you kind of made me appreciate people like Stevie Ray Vaughan, who I should have appreciated, but didn't until I heard the way you do things. So I don't know why you were the, the gatekeeper, but you've opened the door and I appreciate that. Uh as we could get into, that's a bittersweet situation in some ways, but but thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm of course, really happy to turn people on to blues whenever I can. I feel like if there was one positive thing about doing the voice and being on that show uh, was that in this mainstream thing, I got to play blues music. And, of course, I got letters from, you know, emails, not letters, I'm speaking uh, old-fashioned yes. parlance. Um, but, I mean, I got a lot of... Messages from people saying that I had turned them onto blues or that they didn't hear it or or have a love for it before. And of course that feels great. And on the other side is the grand scheme of things approach of it's really too bad that this incredible American music uh, we wouldn't really know about if it weren't for the channels of Stevie Ray Vaughan and the British Invasion. Yeah. And uh, it's complex because people call it cultural appropriation and try to throw mud at all that. And yet, uh, in a lot of ways, for a lot of good reasons, the music was not preserved by African-Americans who went on, by the way, to do much greater things like Motown and stuff. So the blues was largely abandoned or looked at as kind of an old-fashioned music that reflected a time that was not something they necessarily wanted to preserve. Whereas there was this intense human connection to that music and the simplicity of it and the power of it that needed to be preserved. So it actually ended up happening through people across the ocean that loved that music, that played it, and sent it back to us in this young energetic British invasion type way. And then it's like, you know, of course it's more complex than what I'm saying, but that is a majority of the popular expression of blues and how people got exposed to it. And so I do lament that it's not through muddy waters and through, uh, you know, lead belly and through like buddy guy and Albert King and, and BB and blah, 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 that people are generally exposed to it. But at the same time, I'm thankful. However, people are exposed to it because I consider it such a beautiful and powerful part of the tradition, you know, tradition, sorry. And that said, I don't describe to it being cultural appropriation. I consider it actually a more beautiful testament to the, the power of the music to reach across races, to reach across languages, to reach across all that, and to reduce the most powerful elements of music to its most basic principles of having a distinct voice, of being able to recognize somebody within two notes because they've developed their own sound and all that stuff. It's like, it is so awesome and yet, we're 
again, in this day of cancel culture, taught to feel bad about feeling a connection to it on a human level because it's black music. Really? Maybe it helped break down barriers so that I, as a human being, connected and realized that we're all human and connect through it. I really don't like any of what's happening to this. I think music actually has the chance of reaching past these stupid walls and barriers that we put up. And I'm sorry I sound angry about it, but I am because it's just like there's nothing wrong with music actually being able to reach through those things. Mm -hmm. It's actually a beautiful power that it has. It's not to the other end to be attacked and say that like, well, Kenny Wayne Shepherd's a young white boy. He has no business playing the blues. He doesn't know what the blues is. Well, what is the blues? Is it... Does it have anything to do with heartbreak and things that are more human? Or is it all about racism and what was done to the African-Americans in this country? And if it is about that, then yeah, sure, we shouldn't have anything to do with it. It should be left as a historical archival thing of an expression of a time that people face. I guess. I don't really know what I'm... I think that's all a load of crap. And so I think the ends of trying to go down that road lead to a bunch of stuff that are stupid ideas instead of accepting that it is this beautiful, universal language for people to feel some attachment and have the... Uh, impact of carry through whatever their music is. I mean, that's the thing. It just influences everything that comes out of stuff. And I guess where I'm getting to this is the music I love has the blues as a common thread. Right. So even though I didn't necessarily grow up on the blues first, I grew up with Louis Armstrong and Ray Charles and the Beatles and all this music that had the blues as its backbone. They were going beyond it, but like I realized, hey, that connection, that thing that people call soul, that whatever it is, is actually this bluesy uh, infection that, mm -hmm. that it has. And so that's what I really attach myself to. And by the way, with jazz too. And of course, in, in the world of blues, there are these people that we call the blues Nazis because they think they know what the blues is. The blues is not to be defined. The blues is an ever-expanding and ever-growing thing. It has parameters. The blues generally has certain musical forms and certain chord changes and stuff to it. But the idea that Count Basie or Duke Ellington is not blues but Muddy Waters is, the idea that Charlie Parker isn't blues because people call it bebop, that's a load of crap. It's all blues and it all evolved, if you really care to learn the history of it, around those regions and what the musical education was and kind of the colloquial abilities of those musicians at the time. So like sharecroppers in Mississippi played guitars with knives and bottles and whatever they could find and did not know how to read music. If you went down the Mississippi down to New Orleans where there were Creole musicians that were raised, spoke French, knew how to read music, knew how to arrange for clarinets and trumpets and stuff like that, you start to see music like W.C. Handy and things where the blues is being arranged for brass bands. It is actually being put into a tradition of written music and the same thing with the jazz. So, like, I mean, Count Basie is blues to me. And that laid-back Kansas City feel versus as you get up closer to New York City, the hectic pace of life is reflected in the tempos and the crazy chord changes and what these people are trying to do because they're kind of... I know it's acrobatic and maybe show-offy, but the thing is the pace of life in New York, New York City. New York City is this huge melting pot of all these different cultures. A musician there would want to be able to draw from all of that and that fast-paced nature of life to be able to have that come into their music. Anyway, so these things are really uh, organic, natural, evolutionary things that happened with music all over the country due to regional influences and sounds. And I, I you know, that's a lot to chew on, but it's like the idea that anybody ha knows what the blues is, is about one of the biggest load of shits that we could have. So... To me, it's a feeling. I mean, to, uh, you're, I, you're way more educated about it than I, I, I am. Large, it's a feeling. Maybe I'm overstating it, but it's 
The problem is it's more than a failing because it has actual technical implications for harmony and for what the blues is to a musician that plays it. However, I think at the end of the day, it is. It's about the feeling it imparts anyway. Right. So, so yeah, you're, you're right. At the end of the day, that's what we derive from it is something that gets, I guess, in its simplest terms, like, that's bluesy. That's, you know, that's soulful. That's mm -hmm. what it is. And so, yeah, it comes out of a lot more than that. But, but I think um, either way, it's the common thread that I love most about American music. So I think I've rambled on enough about that. Well, let's come back to it in a bit. How about a song that is a, a bluesy take of yours? So, well, like I said, regional sounds are important. And uh, I got this album called Real. Mm -hmm. I wrote three songs actually in New Orleans off of it. But this one, uh, I'll start with this one. I was doing it actually during a sound check. But I wrote this one kind of based on the Chess Records uh, blues sound. So that was a record company in Chicago that had, you know, Willie Dixon and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Coco Taylor and stuff. This probably leads a little more over to that... Uh, Howlin' Wolf and Coco Taylor and Hubert Sumlin influence. Um, this song is called How It's Gonna Be. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, let me tell you, baby, how it's gonna be. Cause I know for sure that I'm out the door If you don't start loving me I'm here to tell you, baby How it's gonna be If you don't learn to love me You're gonna learn to let me be Never give me no good, good loving And you sure don't treat me right I'm here to tell you now, baby How it's gonna be If you don't learn to love me You're gonna learn to let me be Baby, leaving town today. Have 
got enough for your kind of loving to last me all my days. I'm here to tell you now, baby, how it's gonna be. If you don't learn to love me, you're gonna learn to let me be. If you don't learn to love me, you're gonna learn to let me be. If you don't learn to love me, ooh, woman, you're just gonna have to learn to let me be. Stuff. Leith El Sadi on Acoustic Alternatives, How It's Gonna Be. That song has such staying power. I know you've been doing it for years, <laughs> and it still sounds fresh and great every single time you sing it to me. Well, thank you. I love it, I love it. Well, let's let's go back a little farther than what we were just talking about with, uh, not musically speaking, but you speaking. Uh, you were born and raised in Ann Arbor, right? So, yeah, yeah. Born in 1977. Ten years younger than me, but much more accomplished, much more uh, things behind Where me. were you born? I was born in Detroit, grew up in Warren. So nice, nice. An east side boy. I got, I got married and moved west because there was a bigger house available to move into at that time. So. Well, I'm the youngest of four, so my parents met in Ann Arbor at U of M in 1960, got married in 61, and I came about in 77. I was born in St. Joe's Hospital. Uh... And funny enough, there's a friend of mine who is a great and accomplished guitar player named Scott Sherrard, who I met when he was playing for Greg Allman, and he's now the guitar player for Little Feet. He spent the early years of his life in Ann Arbor. We were actually born in the same hospital oh. and the uh, same year and all that stuff, so it's pretty pretty neat. He um, moved, I think, to the greater Detroit area and then made it out of New York, or that's where he lives now. But anyway, fantastic player. and Kind of crazy that this has actually been... The breeding ground for a lot of great artists and musicians. So. It really has. And we were talking before we uh, started the podcast today about Community High School. That's where you went, right, Community? Uh, yeah, yeah. The Community, the great um, hippie school, the yeah. alternative high school of Ann Arbor. I would, Man, life would be so different if I didn't go there. I think contrary to a lot of people's uh, experiences, uh, you know. I had a great high school experience. I actually kind of wish that I had the chance to go back there because I think community was just one of the greatest incubators for, for people to realize themselves and be supported in so many ways. Um, anyway, I'm happy I had that experience. And uh, for Ann Arborites, could not recommend community high school more for somebody that's looking for a more individualized approach to education. I mean, something where you just don't have to fall into the homogenized, generalized thing that's out there. But if you care about having your talents cultivated and being able to have some self-realized thing that makes you unique, I think community is a good way to get there. So Two things about community. A, when the many years I've done Rockin' for the Hungry, helping the radio station I used to work for, they came out in droves with huge contributions. Like they did their own fundraisers and brought us big sums of money. So yeah. I had mad respect for the school, for the way the kids really came and helped the community. Completely different part is that you and I were just talking. Like the thing that I always praise you for is your singing and your playing, which is what you do for a living. But what I often forget to praise you for is how intelligent you are 
and how you you know your subject so well. You are really good. You should be a teacher at community high school or somewhere where you're imparting this knowledge on young kids. I don't I'm know, brother. Serious. I mean, I really appreciate it. But to the other end, um, one of the only things I tell people, because I really don't know what I've learned so far in life. I know what I'm going to search to try and learn about. But um, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And so I don't really, A, trust people that aren't humble. And I'd say that I often feel insufficient to be a teacher. Not that I wouldn't want to share knowledge, but like, I, I'm always a student, man. And you, I, you I teach me stuff all the time every time I talk to you. We all teach each other. That's the nature of it. That's the nature of open exchange and stuff like that. I just don't want to have to wear that hat and be looked at as somebody that should be a role model or anything because I'm not. I'm, I'm learning as I go along. I am a, I try to be as open-minded as possible, and I definitely have that thirst for knowledge. I definitely have a great respect for learning the craft. That's another really complex and unpopular conversation we could get into, too, because I hate what's defined as music these days and the idea that melody and harmony and the knowledge of the interplay not only are under attack in terms of it's absent from pop music and people actually have to have an argument about what is music, but in fact that... I've seen now several videos portraying knowledge of music theory and of Western music, which is the whole system that all of our instruments are built upon and were designed for, and it's existed since at least Pythagoras, but that has been under attack as racist. And so I'm supposed to feel guilt for having knowledge of a written system of music. I mean, that would be like saying that your language is racist. Of course, yes, it's the product of a certain culture and whoever developed that thing but the intent is actually to universalize it so for all these people that think that written music is just like uh elitist and whatever i mean remember the most basic thing because i think it's actually really crappy to say that because it gave us the ability to play other people's music it gave you the ability to actually experience other people's music after they were dead so like if you believe that you don't have to learn how to read it, it's done all about you. You don't have to learn about your craft. You don't have to stand on the shoulders of giants. You don't have to have the ability to learn anything about the traditions of your stuff. Everything you poop out is gold, and it's original. And that's what we live in now, because people don't have to learn their craft, but they can turn out great stuff from their apartment or whatever on their laptop. And, you know, this is, it's terrible, man. This is part of our cultural tradition. This is like learning cuisine. It's like this is music is what helps bring people together and is something that should stand the test of time and be uh, something that is shared and, and helps us come together by sharing and, and celebrating our diversity and backgrounds. It's not a, a metaphor that it's a language. Music actually is a language. And as you can tell by us being able to identify music from the different parts of the world and stuff, it in fact has many different dialects and many different shapes, much like you couldn't define what a spoken language would be like beforehand. I mean, there are, I, I don't know if this is getting too abstract, so I don't want to continue rambling too long, but it's not a metaphor, man. I mean, Russian music sounds different than American music from different eras. And by the way, America's got a bunch of different sounding musics itself. So I mean, even to make the statement that different countries have different sounding music is actually way oversimplified, but that is just definitely true. We could identify Indian music. We can identify Arabic music. We can identify French music. We can identify all this stuff if you know the sounds and all that stuff. So it's just like food. If you had a palate and you would taste of those things before, you'd be able to tell generally what style these things were. And of course, as you get into the world and people become more... Uh, culturally aware and stuff, you have the fusions of these things, which is the next level of the creation. We actually have these worldly 
great fusions of these traditions. And when people actually care about those and learn them, then we can grow from them. When people choose to uh, not learn about their traditions and again have that hubris thing where it's just like, oh, everything I do is the best, that would be like saying if you owned a great hamburger stand, and I love a great hamburger, that you are in fact a great chef. <laughs> and that's not true. True. Well said. Well, anyway, <laughs> back to education as I was going from community Western Michigan was next, not U of M, even though you lived That's there. That's true, man. Wow. Um, I don't actually talk about that much. So, yeah, Western was, and um, I had a couple soul-searching years in Kalamazoo. So I went as a voice major and guitar major there. Did their vocal jazz program, which was Gold Company, and it was fantastic, and then played jazz guitar. Um, I also, though, was... Really trying to find myself, and of course with my parents kind of being overprotective about whether I should in fact pursue music, that was not really supported. In fact, it was heavily questioned because of the questionable nature of the music business and mm -hmm. the fact that they wanted me to have security and a family and whatever these noble things are. So, uh, so in fact, I went there and I needed to prove to myself that I'd be able to make a living playing music and stuff. So my thing was actually more about playing. And my first two summers uh, after my, my years at Western, I played three nights a week, sorry, six nights a week, three times a night. Cool. So that was uh, every night but Sunday, we'd have first and second set and then a dance set at this place uh, called Dills in Traverse City. And I, I had great summers there. It was, you know, the band was all living together. We had a really awesome show. We had a great director and we worked really hard to maintain a very high standard of entertainment. Um, and that so Blue Vinyl or is that a different No, there was a, it was a collective. So Blue Vinyl was actually my blues band in high school, okay. and I wrote for them, and we actually opened up for Buddy Guy when I was 16. This is all pre-graduated from high school. Yeah. After my first year at Western, I did an audition, much like Disney and Cedar Point, I guess. They had these places up north, Schuss Mountain, Shaney Creek, and Dill's Old Town Saloon. And they'd go to the greatest music schools in the whole northwest region of the country, like these guys went uh, to at least 15 different schools to recruit for their program. And uh, because most of the music schools had people that were dying for an opportunity like this, they had a lot of auditions. So I felt lucky to be picked for it. Um, the Dill show was nine different musicians. So I was the singer and guitarist, but I... The people for, were from all over the place, but there were four singers up front. And then there was a keyboard player, a drummer, a bassist, and me. So... Um, and then there was a lady that was the MC for the show. So it was a nine-person show altogether with eight recruited college kids in it. The Schuss Mountain show, which I did, uh, which was Schussy Cats, um, that was what the group was called. Ben Folds was a Schussy Cat. Really? There are quite a few actually famous musicians that were, and <laughs> I believe Christine Lottie, the act actress, uh, was a Schussy Cat. So this goes back to the 70s, uh, I think, as far as when it started. And it did end probably close to the year 2000, I think, for both places. Um, so I was really happy to be a part of this tradition. But they had a larger group. I think it was a 12-piece group that we had. So there were two keyboard players in the band, and there were six uh, singers and dancers up front. Hmm. Anyway, man, um, I don't want to get too caught up in that, but those did affirm that uh, I could make a decent living just playing music. They had decent quality production for the shows. And after the third summer, uh, my rock and roll band, which was kind of the core rhythm section of the group that had played that third summer up at Schiss Mountain Shaney Creek, was asked to stay up there and play through the ski season. And so we all did that. We got a chalet, we got free room and board, and we got to have 
a full stage setup and play four shows a week, basically uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for the people that were visiting the resort, and um, it was fantastic for us. Now, of course, we looked at it as an opportunity to all incubate and kind of write together and practice because we'd be living, supported as a band to have this house. So that sounds great, but when it actually came into practice, everybody had a girlfriend that lived hours away, <laughs> and so the second we were done on Sunday, everybody was getting in their car to leave, and we'd come back maybe Wednesday night, probably Thursday during the day so that we could play the Thursday gigs. So it was cool to learn that we could support ourselves as musicians. Uh, the other part of life was that we're not just musicians, and so the time spent free was spent freely. And it, it was a sad lesson to learn because as I got into the professional world, People were harder to get. You got better talent, but people's time was more valuable. So the idea of people getting together to just play through or learn a piece of music or do something for the artistic aspect was no longer there. It's like you pretty much didn't do stuff till you had the means professionally to be able to pay people. And of course, that's fine. This is how we make our living. So I didn't have a problem with that reality. But at the same time, there was a beautiful thing about just studying music and being with people that were not motivated by money and professional circumstances to do that stuff because at the end of the day, what I spend doing in the practice room and all those hours I'm not professionally playing but I'm practicing my craft and learning about it, that is not motivated by money. It's motivated by love of art. It's motivated by what I think the power of music is. Yeah, for sure. Now, you did that for quite a while, but it's... I point, still do it, brother. Well, no, not that. The, the, the whole playing for the Trish Cats and all the, 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 the part of your life where you're playing music. Oh, yeah, it continued. When I moved down here, I uh, was lead singer for the Detroit Lions pep band uh, mm -hmm. when they were down at Ford Field. I got to play for the great Johnny Trudell Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I played for Fenby Stein Orchestra. I played for Jerry Ross from LaRoyo Ross Entertainment. I mean, I was a tuxedo-jobbing musician wow. playing jazz tunes with a big band, playing rock and roll. I also had my own group that did plenty of uh, jobbing dates and stuff. So yeah, I was I know how to work as a working musician. I also actually trained myself to be a pretty versatile studio guy, but unfortunately these days you just don't get studio work. So like if anybody wants me to play on their stuff, uh please contact me, man. I mean What's your I, website? I, I love playing guitar. My website is lathalsadi.com. Uh, L-A-I-T-H-A-L-S-A-A-D-I.com. And I mean, anyway, just like anything else, though, you know, one of the things I like to do is bring people's concepts to life. Uh, and of course, I'm going to be maybe choosy about what level I choose to take on in terms of uh, artists that I, that I associate with. But that said, yeah, man, the creative process is what I want. I want to be uh, brought in and told what somebody wants and be able to see the smile on their face or their eyes light up when I finally get to what they hear in their head and I'm helping them achieve their goals. And so the thing is, I know how to do it. I got a wide enough palette between my guitars and basses and my vocal abilities and ability to arrange for stuff like that. So I think I'm an asset. Um, I, I like to try and be anyway. There's far greater than me, but but I like to participate in the creative process and the uh, the realization of other music than my own. And I think while I feel really lucky and blessed that I've been able to focus on my own music and that I get paid to be my own band leader and get to play my own stuff in a concert setting, that's only the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, I think that it comes out of wanting to play with other people and helping that. And I mean, look, even in great artists like David Bowie, you see that. David Bowie was a huge pop star when he went on the road playing keyboards for Mott the Hoople that he, you know, had sure. recorded with. And I mean, you even look at the Berlin era with Iggy Pop and, and in Lou Reed and stuff. So, I mean, this is like, it is 
first of all, it's so hard to get to be supported in terms of your own artistic goals that, of course, it makes sense. It's not selfish. It's the nature of the business. We're going for scraps already. And so there is this kind of like fight to get that record deal or to get the support of the right lawyers or promoters or producers or whoever is a tastemaker these days that can get your shit out there so that you can make a living, man. I mean, that's the reality of it, right? We don't know how this works. We're just making art and we want to be lucky enough to get our stuff out there. The problem is half those people are sharks. And there isn't really a way for artists to get their stuff directly to the consumer in an effective manner. Yes, it's possible with the internet, but if you realize how when everything's decentralized like that, you're still fighting for scraps at that level. So you need a way to break through and have a budget, a street team, a way to promote yourself. And especially these days, because I grew up at the end of the era where you hope to get a record deal, you basically are responsible for putting together the aspects of that mechanism or organism that a record company has to promote by yourself. And so it's happening that there are agencies independently that can be hired for these purposes because, of course, people realize it. But the industry has not yet made a great shift, I don't think, to providing those type of things. Um, and so you do have to kind of relearn this. And by the way, to overcomplicate this, you used to tour to support the album. Literally, the record companies and the industry will tell you now, you make the album to support the tour. So gone are the days of Pink Floyd, the Beatles, people that didn't tour but made incredible sonic masterpieces using the studio as an instrument for people to listen to at home. In fact, through streaming, people won't even have an album to listen to, so they're going to cherry pick whatever they chose to download because they heard that little 10-second soundbite in a commercial and want to hear it. So you're not going to get the chance to actually get your point across as an artist. If you choose to make a concept album, you're still going to have people that are going to pick one song or two songs and play it. There won't be the actual physically putting the album on and switching sides, part A, part B, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I... I the thing is, is that it's changing the listening experience because, as always, it's actually not dictated by the artist. The artist, once they put their art in the world, has no control over the perception of it. It's how it is consumed by the consumer. It's not only perception, but it's literally how it's consumed as a commodity. And that is the scariest part because right now, A, it doesn't pay enough for the artist to be able to make decent art. It, do, it just doesn't. Yeah. You can't pay other musicians. You can't pay producers. You can't pay for the studio time, for the right microphones, for all that stuff. And while we all have laptops and while we all have amazing technology available at our fingertips, we actually don't have the ability to wear all those hats and we don't at one time. I mean, as an artist, I benefit a lot from being able to keep my guitar on and stand behind the mic and have somebody behind the glass that's operating all the technical stuff so that I don't have to stop, take my guitar off, press stop on the recorder, set everything else up again and put my stuff on. That delays the process more than five times probably. If I can just keep my guitar on, hey, if I screw up singing a note, stop it, let's start another take. I have my guitar on, I'm singing already, I'm warmed up, we can go on and get all that stuff, as you know. I mean, so even in the process of making a show, editing is like that. I think um, these are all, I mean, again, I could ramble on about the impact of technology and all the changes, but I think for the most part, my point that I'm trying to make is that, in fact, support for arts, the way society values music as an important aspect of culture and the recognition that people actually have to actively support these artists have really diminished and gone away. And so while you're independent, everybody can make stuff at home, that's like saying everybody's a chef. 
It really is. Like, no, not many people know the craft. Yeah, you have the ability now to record CD quality sound, but you might not have the ability to play more than four chords. And so now society has to wade through the, you can't ever say anything bad about anybody. So now on the internet and with everything we have, we light up, we give gas to a bunch of mediocre shit. And it's just true. So... I'm sorry, but this this epidemic has proven that. There's a bunch of people that have spent their lives trying to make it out there and have a lot of experience writing and playing, and they don't get as much of a voice sometimes or even an equal voice as somebody that just is stuck at home and has been playing guitar for two months that's able to go on Facebook Live to all their popular friends and say, hey, look at this. And sometimes, A, they're not even playing original music. Sometimes they're not even singing a real version of the song because they learn some, like, tablature version of the chords to a song and you see stuff like this hey guys guess what i'm playing today it's time for some green day and it's like you're not singing a melody you don't provide a complete version of the song you are playing literally the chord changes to the song and while i applaud you learning your instrument and doing that that shouldn't be put on display for the public as a standard of what music is man that is like somebody learning their alphabet because they want to learn how to be literate versus people that have been literate and are writers of novels and things like that and you're giving that gas it's not to try and tear it down. I hate to be in this position now where I'm sure I'm being judged of actually saying, stop doing that. Elevate art that is worthy of being elevated because it's such a difficult field that you're leaving other people that have dedicated their lives and have more talent in the tradition for a bunch of mediocre stuff. I think the equivalent is that you have a ton of kids who play soccer or football or baseball and only a few of them are pros. Those ones get rewarded for their efforts because they're the best. But you have every kid that can play a street corner baseball game yeah. doesn't deserve to be a star. Right? And that's true. And at the same time, they deserve to play. Sure, they don't deserve they do. to be abused or no, punished or, or made to feel bad. So this is not the alternative, right? Yeah. I have no negatives that I want placed on people that are just playing guitar for a hobby. I'm just saying for those that were encouraged, that they found they were talented enough, and that those people actually changed their lives and followed this path to try and learn their craft to be as good as they can about it as possible, mm -hmm. those are real artists out there and they were already struggling before the pandemic. They don't need to have a bunch of people that have idle time on their hands that just want to fancy themselves a rock star and they're a social media influencer or whatever so that that happens, that they get more audience, they get more support for stuff that is just of crap quality. Let's take a breath and have you sing. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of crap quality. No, no, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you know, John, okay, I've only done these songs actually uh, on my live broadcast, so I'm going to give you uh, the the debut, I guess, recordings uh, for an for a interview anyway, or a public setting, of two songs that are on my forthcoming album. So let me proceed with this. I recorded an album that I have not been able to put out uh, in 2019, at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. So December and January, respectively, of those months, the tracks were recorded. I can't wait to get them out. I'll tell you more about this if you want uh, afterwards. But anyway, I'm going to play you two songs off the record. Here's a cheery little number. This is called Like a Dead Man in the Ground. I don't know how I can go on, dear. You broke my heart in two. I'm trying to keep myself together But it's awful hard to do, yeah, yeah 
I think of all the time I wasted Believing that your love was true And when the things got hard to handle You did the easy thing to do Now I sit here all alone, dear Wondering how it all went down I never thought that you would leave me Like a dead man in the ground Well, do you ever think of me now? You know my love was pure and true And when your days on earth are over The devil's coming straight for you Sit here all alone, dear Just wondering how it all went down, yeah, yeah I never thought that you would leave me Like a dead man in the ground Where do you ever think of me now? You know my heart was pure and true when your days on earth are over The devil's coming straight for you When your days on earth are over The devil's coming straight for you First time I've heard them, and I love it. Oh, thank you. Late Sadian, Acoustic Alternatives. You want to just go into the other one? We'll talk about the, the new sure, album. Sure, man. Okay, so here's another one off of there, and this actually has been lumped in with it. Uh, both of these have a undeniable country-ish influence. That one, I think, more kind of the Ray Charles crying time soul country western swing thing. Yeah. Uh, and then this one, maybe you'll hear a little more of that Bakersfield, uh, Merle Haggerty sound. And the reason why I'm saying this is because these were actually, I'm unabashed about this because he's from Ann Arbor, but I wrote these songs during a time that I was watching week after week Ken Burns' uh, series on the history of country music in America. And the thing is, it was super inspiring. And of course, Ken Burns grew up in Burns Park neighborhood of Ann Arbor. So I feel a connection not only to him, but Lynn Novick, because I actually went to school with uh, Anna Novick at Tappan and uh, Community. And so blah, blah, blah. I'm not only proud of the uh, history being put out there because he did a tremendous job with the Civil War, with Vietnam, with jazz, with all this other stuff. I mean, it's like he's not, he's telling the stories of 
the America that I am most proud of being a part of, I guess, and the trials and tribulations of getting to where we are today. And he's like from my backyard, man. I feel so proud that he's from Ann Arbor. And these are really fantastic stories that need to be preserved for generations to come. So anyway, I'm done with praising Ken Burns. This song is, uh, like I said, kind of following the other one in my performances. I haven't performed much, but I like putting them together. So this is called another cheery title. I should have questioned her motivation. I should have questioned her motivation Before the train left the station And now I'm sitting here broken hearted and alone Well, don't I miss my chance A sweet romance with the girl that's down in Texas now And I fear I'm growing old all by myself Lord, please come and save me Cause I've clearly lost my way I traded my soul for a heart of fool's gold And she left me again today It seems every time life gets on track Well, she always knocks it out of whack She'll steal your thunder and rain on your parade I should have questioned her motivation Before the train left the station And now I'm sitting here broken hearted and alone well, Lord, I miss my chance, a sweet romance with a girl that's down in Texas now. And I fear I'm growing old all by myself. Tries to turn back the hands of time She loses control of her jealous mind Trying to make everyone just as miserable as she Well, it's a losing battle that she won't realize And a real true crime that in her sorrow She can ruin today just thinking about tomorrow Should have questioned her motivation Before the train when I left the station and now I'm sitting here broken hearted and alone Well, Lord, I miss my chance A sweet romance with a girl that's down in Texas now And I fear I'm growing old all by myself Lord, I fear I'm growing old all by myself This close to that greatness right there. <laughs> El Sadi on acoustic alternatives. A song that had 
Rick Rubin had available to him when Johnny Cash was recording his final records would have sounded great on a Johnny Cash record. Oh, well, thank you. I think that would have been a standout. That's a standout cut for you. So. Well, maybe Rick Rubin will hear me someday and show some interest. I would think that he would. <laughs> I think that you you could get his attention if he was paying attention. Oh, man, I wish I could. I've actually tried to uh, get his attention on Twitter and various things. But if anybody knows how to get to Rick Rubin and <laughs> thinks the same as John here, please let me know how to get to him or get my music in front of him because, I man. I didn't know you were a fan. You know... I've grown to be. I watched that uh, Showtime special that he had, and I would say it made me more of a fan because, of, as you know, I'm, um, I don't want to denigrate anything, but I'm not a huge fan of rap and stuff. So um, he was not the guy I thought of. Now, of course, I love those Johnny Cash records, and of course, that gave me insight into his versatility as a producer. But what changed my mind is actually getting more into his philosophies about art and recording and stuff. And so he did this great Shangri La series on Showtime. And it's actually named after the studio that was named Shangri-La that the band had used. Uh, so it has more significance to me. As you know, I'm a huge fan of the band. So it's like, so yeah, there's this history of that studio and of what the mojo is inside of it and all that. And so it made me watch the show. And of course, I got to hear him talk more ph philosophically about his ideas of aesthetics and his recording process. I'm sorry to have the pronunciation process. <laughs> I was thinking of five words at once. So anyway, um, yeah, that that's basically, you know, I, I had much greater respect for him after that. And I think that he also, through his process, of course, as many of us do, man, we enter into these new hats to wear, these new worlds through necessity, right? And so he came out through the Beastie Boys and through the attention he got through that little microcosm. But I think he's actually grown to be a complete producer of music and understand how music works on a much more large-scale level than a lot of us that are dealing with the, the microcosms of that. Well, talking about these new recordings, we can't, can't help but look at what you did with Real, which is you put together a dream team of some amazing musicians that, I mean, seriously, that was your dream team, wasn't it? Pretty much, man. I mean, without Clapton and Paul McCartney and all that stuff, yes. the, the Attainable dream team. <laughs> yeah, let's say attainable dream team. That's a good way of putting it. Certainly my favorite of the living, legendary studio musicians that I hope to start to work with, yes. Tom Scott, Leland Sklar, and Jim Keltner, right? And Larry Goldings on keyboards, and Jimmy Vivino on guitar. The rest of the horn section also is... You know, same Tom Scott level, man. Lee Thornburg from Tower of Power, from all that stuff, playing trumpet. Uh, Brandon Fields on baritone sax. The trombone player, Nick Lane, uh, who played for Chicago and for, uh, I mean, Joe Bonamassa right now. You know, he plays with a lot of cats, but he's one of the top call jazz uh, trombone players and arrangers and stuff these days and does a lot of great, great tours. So who did you call on for the next record? Well, that I wasn't as lofty. Um, Real was the first time I'd had a producer with connections show interest in doing something with me. And he also had a background in doing what was called live to two-track recording, which I love very much because I just really like preserving the spontaneity of the interaction with the musicians. I hate this ultra-perfect, okay, let's re-record and, and fix every single note of everything because at the end of the day, that's sterile and lacks feeling and sophistication and natural... Uh, diversity i guess and so at the end of the day i think putting on a false and fake perfect front is uh just like anything else in life man it's fake and it's not cool so i, I prefer hearing the real deal and hearing artists that have actually achieved the level of what they're putting out there and not having some engineer that's cutting and pasting everything to make it perfect um so that that as a concept uh 
I did my own album. Let me backtrack a little bit. Jeff Weber did the uh, real album, and he's a great jazz and, and blues producer, and it was great to work with him and got to get in there, work with these studio legends, be in uh, a awesome historic building. Uh, Ocean Way Recording is what it was called at the time, and now it's a United Sound. But, man, the room that I was in, everybody from Sanct Frank Sinatra and Count Basie to... Michael Jackson to the Verve Pipe to, you know, just everything was recorded in there. And it's this awesome historic room with a great vibe. Anyway, so it was an experience to do that. Also, I'd only done my albums in Ann Arbor and using local studios. So just to be able to be out in L.A. and kind of experience the full tilt like this is what the pros would do um, mm -hmm. was, was interesting, man. So this time I went to another studio that's legendary. It's called Sunset Sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, long history of great records being made there, and this is, of course, on the sunset in, in Hollywood, and um, I got Jim Keltner back on drums because I, I am enthralled, blessed, uh, in amazement still, this guy believes in my music and wants to work with me, and uh, at the time I came upon wanting to do this album, uh, I had had a really rough couple of years and did not have a lot of means to be able to do it, and that's actually what had delayed me getting out my album for so long it's not a lack of songs i've actually got hundreds of songs i need to record uh that might not ever see the light of day if i can't recoup my investment for recording because right now really i'm going to tell you the truth man i'm putting my own money into recording not to make money i'm putting it in there because if i die i will not have anything left as a legacy and that's the sad truth of it so i don't even have enough budget to make poor quality recordings unless i do everything at home by myself of the songs i've written and i'm just hoping i have enough of a fan base and support that i can continue the process of recording for my own legacy and and what will be left because i did not choose to be born at a time where the music industry was completely unsustainable and exploitive of artists and stuff so you know this is dire man i mean i literally if i'm paying to do these recordings i expect to lose money on them hopefully as the record companies say and all this stuff hopefully i'll sell enough tickets to be able to make a career in music and support the wanting to do that but this was coming from somebody that i've made four albums that were profitable already i mean this was it's a hard pill to swallow that like now my art's supposed to be just out there available for free and you know it, it really just takes away any incentive of wanting to make high quality well-produced works except for that at time, you know, maybe in time artists will be supported. Maybe in 200 years it'll matter more that I left some link to this idea or this song being complete so people can hear it versus complaining to you about not being able to do it because of resources. So anyway, these are really annoying circumstances, and I, I hope that um, people wake up and realize that art is important, and the people that chose to go down this path already realized it wasn't well-supported. People don't really... They're not thankful. They feel entitled to art and like it should be free to them. And I really don't know where to go with that because it takes so much time and dedication to focus on your craft and do this. And there's so many other things that are more economically rewarding or rewarding in terms of popularity or what is recognized. I mean, artists are not, they're valued by a select few, I would say that. And otherwise, society doesn't seem to really value them to the point where they're willing to support them and make sure that we have the best made in fact the, the fact that i see so many people that are so intelligent and so talented struggling on a regular basis and never getting their due is continually trying on me as a human being because i'm not the bottom of the barrel and yet right now dude i mean i, I in 2012 m live put out an article that i was the hardest working man in michigan show business 
You well, know, you, from you were four or five nights a week. I had six regular nights a week. Actually, yeah. it would still take day gigs and recording sessions and whatever. I never said no. I have a good work ethic when it mm-hmm. comes to it. Um, so let's contrast that. I over twenty five years made a living, not having to teach, not having to teach guitar, only playing music as a performer, being able to sustain my ability to be at home and do my creative things. And to that degree, I gave up having a family, a wife. I realized these things would not be great if I was going to be on the road all the time and all that stuff. So these are real decisions I made. So, you know, boo-hoo, I made sacrifices and everybody else doesn't want to be compassionate about this. But I did, man. I could have been a lawyer. I'm not an idiot. I could have done things that were more self-serving and more for my economic benefit and welfare. But no, I went into music believing altruistically, A, I love this. B, I would not be able to deal with myself if I didn't try to follow this dream because it was that deeply embedded in me that I knew it was not practical, but I also knew that this is the only thing in life that I would be able to derive my happiness from. And so I made that choice, man. And um, again, I was not at the bottom of the barrel. I am on unemployment. I've had the chance to play one gig last week in the last year. Uh, It's been an extreme struggle. The monies and relief that have been given to venues, which, by the way, if you own a venue, you're already rich. So the idea that that never trickled down to the gig worker, yet did to the bartenders and waitresses and waitresses. And by the way, they should get money. This is not about them not getting it. It's about the fact that this was basically trickle-down economics in terms of the relief program, and it never reached the artist. The artists play one or two times at a select venue during the year and use the combination of all these venues to make a living because we tour around and play them. Well, the Paycheck Protection Program made you provide proof of a paycheck. So you needed a pay stub. You needed an employee number. You needed all this crap or a letter from your employee to get relief in those regards. I realize now maybe it's changed. I've been told in the last month or so that I can reapply and that they opened it up to 1099 workers. But again, that's over a year after we started the lockdown. And the thing is, guys, we got to start giving people stuff from the bottom up. That will help economically and work. But the thing is, if you give large sums of money to people that already have it and entrust them with the distribution of it, it's not going to reach a lot of people that need it. So, yeah, artists and people that that are on that side of the fence, we never got relief. Uh, And I wouldn't be complaining, but I've been able for so long to be able to make my living solely as a performer. And this is the first time in my life that not only am I incredibly depressed by it, but I'm not sure that I'm going to return to a position of being able to carve out a decent living doing that anymore. And I mean, again, I have two degrees in music. I've dedicated more than just eight years. My whole life has been dedicated towards this path of being able to sustain my living as a performer. And um, I certainly think that it should be able to be possible, that it's really scary to think that it's the, this difficult, especially after being a finalist on The Voice, a finalist in Guitar Center's King of the Blues competition. I mean, I wear two hats that should make me, again, I don't think I'm great. This is not about me feeding my ego. It's about me saying I'm good enough in this that I should be able to eke out a living. That's so. what I'm saying. Yeah. I do not think I'm God's gift to anything. I think that I do actually see organically through the happiness of people and what I can spread out to reach that I'm doing noble work, that the idea that this is what I can do to provide the most joy and happiness and inspiration to others around me for the collective and common good, that's why I play music. So it's totally antithetical to the capitalist, I'm out for me and my own and going to just plunder and and subjugate and get the most wealth that I can. No, I actually believe in fighting for equal opportunity, equal rights, all that 
I don't believe we're completely equal. I don't think that there are ends to that where it can be perfect, but I think the idea is that we recognize how all these things fit into the bigger picture and try to uplift each other and help enable each other to get the most happiness out of this one go-round in life that we get in, in this greater collective. Because regardless of your spiritual beliefs or whatever, we are physically at least part of a greater, let's call it ecosystem, that we have to recognize our roles in. And I believe the arts are a very important part of that. I agree with you. And people can support you. You've been doing weekly shows, right? Or, yeah, man. I bet, you know, I've gotten thousands of views, and I really am thankful for that. So, again, this is not to try and no. disparage, but, like, I have the same core group of probably less than 40 people that have donated over the last year that have made it possible to eat by. Yet, some of my shows have over 40,000 views. So, you know, I'd, I'd rather have everybody listen, give 50 cents, than have two people that are willing to give me 500 bucks at a time to sustain stuff because, yeah. yes, that's incredible, but the overall thing is most people have that attitude. I'm talking about, A, I'm just flipping through on their phone. B, they're just not going to take the time. You know, they don't support the arts to that degree. They don't value it the way they should. It's art that's being made by somebody who's worked their life to... to as good as you are at it. Well, thank you, man. I mean, these are things I try to stay away from because I don't think I'm good and I don't want to tell people what they should and shouldn't do. So it is just, again, in my opinion, yeah. the arts are that important and I'm merely reporting the facts that people are struggling as your artists to even get their art out there and of a decent quality. So if you care culturally about uplifting those things and seeing the best from those parts of society... I think it's important. And by the way, yeah, it's unpopular, but I mean, look at high school athletics. Look at the other things that do drive this that get too much money. And the University of Michigan, my wonderful alma mater, is one of those things, man. I mean, they get most of their money from stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Who plays the music at the football games? Mm -hmm. Is it ever skilled musicians that they've taken in that showcase the talent of the music school? Nope. It's actually people that are not music majors mostly that march on fields every day, which, by the way, you can't really play well and march at the same time. So the marching band is not really aesthetically something that should be showcased. They, at this point, should be allowing halftime and with the exposure of hundreds of thousands of fans, let alone possibly alumnus of the university, to get exposed to the real talent there, man. Have the jazz big man get to play at least one football game to provide a, a show. Have an orchestral group, you know, and I'm... I mean, it's just terrible. There's no connection and no want to make people more aware of good quality arts. In fact, everything gets dumbed down into that. And so we're still, even with academia, dealing with economics as the main dictator of the role the arts get to play. And the arts have always needed support economically, not generated them. It's really, uh, I mean... I think it's too lofty to expect them to be able to take over because they just never have historically. They've needed to be supported. Artists don't have it easy. They're not choosing an easy path. They need to be uplifted as people that are champions of the culture, important just like journalists, important just like anybody else that helps us realize things about the life we live in, the world we live in, you know? I mean, I don't want to, again, like get way into deeper conversations, but I, I think that a lot of times on the basic level, artists are often the ones that usher in new ideas and new eras, whether we're talking about the Enlightenment, whether we're talking about things, I mean, you know, I'm talking historical and philosophical movements in time that affect every single aspect of human existence. Deep. So, 
Yeah, I was I was foolish enough to believe that I could change the world through art. Uh, I think with the example of the late 60s and stuff, there's an altruism to people like me that believe the best and most effective way we could try to change the world for the better was to actually do that. So I don't believe in violence. I don't believe in <laughs> any of these things. I believe in this is a positive way of trying to get a message out because we do need to get people to wake up. But, I mean, you know, it's just like... Uh, Obviously, you can tell, man, going back to Woody Guthrie. He had on his guitar, this machine kills fascists. I mean, so yeah, we we believe we can affect change. We also believe that art is a way to maybe reach people when they're a little bit more open-minded and peaceful and willing to accept new ideas ideas and ideologies. Um, So that's the thing, man. I mean, it's like like we we have this, I guess, uh, altruistic belief that art can help save the world. And uh, I actually believe that. I'm foolish enough to. So how can people help you make it that the record that you finished recording can be heard? What can we do about that? Uh, that actually, it, that will happen it. already. The problem is I was really deeply economically impacted because I got the resource to get together. I recorded the album. I invested too much to be able to release it into a world where I can't play. And if I do that, I will have no hope of getting the over $40,000 out of my pocket I put into making the record because I'd probably make five hundred back even off of 100,000 spins on Spotify. And that's how bad it is, by the way. So, yeah, I can't release this and have any hope of of recouping unless I can actually hit the road with some kind of tour to support the album. So that's what we're waiting on. Because you can make money off a physical thing more than you can off a stream, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, so. Absolutely. And well, to, to a ridiculous amount, man. Somebody could stream my song a thousand times, and I'd make a little over a penny. Ooh, that's great. It's a pretty flawed system, and I wish we could fix that. I mean, that's... it. <laughs> streaming put me out of a business a while ago, too. I used to run a wholesale business selling import CDs to record stores across the USA, and Napster made it so people didn't go to record stores to buy stuff anymore, right, period. Right. So that, that whole, that just kept going. Really. And I mean, the ulterior things, right? Nobody has lyrics to look at. They don't know who the personnel are on the records. They don't see those pictures. I mean, the difference between the era you and I grew up on where we could lie on the floor and open mm-hmm. up uh, an LP, you know, uh, yeah. case and have all that stuff into. So there was literally a world to enter into as we listened to the music and immersed ourselves in the imagery of the, you know, packaging and the lyrics and all that stuff and what it provided. And the thing is like, I know I'm waxing poetic about an old school thing, but it's like, I really prefer that so much more. I mean, I thought the potential was there with music videos, but we lived through that. MTV was only like a music channel for maybe five or six years, it seems like. And then all of a sudden going out into this cheap programming, pandering to teenagers and like then VH1 for a second. But now, man, I mean... In a time where you would expect, especially with with YouTube, that we would switch to a more high-end, multifaceted viewer experience. In other words, maybe music isn't just recorded, but you do have a video, but you still need the metadata and stuff. And that's not incorporated yet. So I think, futuristically with my hat on, that we're going to enter into some point where... Streaming music is of the same quality as the, you know, the physical things that we get artifacts to to play that music on because right now it just doesn't sound as good via a lot of technological concerns. But I think also that it will be packaged as there will be a video or a visual element. There will be a bunch of data you can look up. And so it should be a, uh, 
more multifaceted experience. You should be able to have access to who produced the record, what year it came out, who's playing bass on it, uh, on what tracks, who was the arranger, who's the composer of all that stuff. I mean, every single thing that should be available digitally. And until that is, and the digital experience actually provides more than what it could with the uh, physical artifact experience, I don't know what else to call it, um, I think we're kind of lost because the potential's already there. It's like we saw it coming with videos. I think people that thought that was the vanguard and the future of it expected to see it evolve. And in fact, it really didn't, I don't think. I don't think music video became very popular. I mean, right now, do you think that it is? I think it's a way to find music. I don't I don't use Spotify like most people do. I if I want to find and hear a new song, I'm actually probably gonna search for a video of it personally. This is I would rather have a, a physical CD. But if I want to discover something, oh, I wonder if so and so has any song out. I'll, I'll Google YouTube for it. That's that's what I do. See, now I don't actually pick. I just Google the person and the song, and yeah. of course YouTube because they've formatted it in a way that it presents it. I yeah. will click on the video link. Yeah. I am not purposely searching for a video. Right. And again, because of that, and because they're actually shepherding the folks that are looking for the information, I don't see it as incumbent on us as consumers to change that based on that. I think it's up to them to actually provide this stuff in a way that actually it provides the most benefit to the system that supports it. In other words, Google should be caring about the hierarchy of those links showing up so that they show up in a way that might support the artist. Because it's great okay. if you learn about me, but it's terrible if you put my name in and the first thing that comes up is some unlicensed person that's stolen my recording, put it on YouTube on their own channel so it's not monetized to give me a cent and I have to backtrack through if I I want to, which we don't have the time to do this, and find these people and use litigious means to tell them to cease and desist or give us our rightful royalties because they've chosen to disseminate our intellectual pro intellectual property for free. Like, these are terrible situations. And of course, on the other end of that, I want people to hear my music. I want to get it out there. But like, let's use this as an example, man. Streaming so much worse than purchasing things, yet Apple, who has Apple Music and Apple iTunes, I cannot direct people to purchase my MP3 or MP4 track off iTunes versus stream it. If I give them the link that would take them to iTunes to specifically suggest that they might want to pay a buck so I get 60 some cents from that, Apple immediately switches them to Apple Music to try and get them to pay a monthly fee that pays me nothing and it is a game of you have to know exactly where you're trying to get and try hard to get to the place where you actually can buy the track and do anything that would support the artist even more because it's not enough but it's still better than streaming. I'm and sick. I'm sick to my stomach. Now. It's, Thanks. <laughs> it's all a game, man and That's and you know, it's uh, uh It's frustrating. Okay. We never really did answer the question about who else is on the record besides Jim Keltner. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's get to that. <laughs> and then we'll... <laughs> Sorry. I'm, it's I'm, okay. We'll have I'm, to wrap it up. I'm on a mission today. I know. <sighs> I'm really not. I'm sorry about this because... No, you're good. I, I like to be a little interesting more cheery. Um, okay, so I am actually really excited about this, so this will put, put a smile on my face. So the second album, yes. Real was such a great experience with the people. So Jim Keltner is back, and he plays on the whole thing. Now... When I got to open up for Greg Allman, who was one of my big heroes, I happened to meet his band, and they were incre incredibly supportive of me and my music on that one time. So I actually stayed in touch with a lot of members of his band. Got to hang out with Greg that day, too. But his bass player, who was wrapping up a 17-year uh, affiliation or career with Greg Allman, is named Jerry Jamat. Jerry Jamat is one of the great R&B soul bass players of all time, blues. Jerry Jamat played with... 
Wilson Pickett, with mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin, with B.B. King, mm -hmm. with Herbie Hancock, with King Curtis. Uh, he is just, you know, one of my studio idols. And the thing is, I met him and he was the greatest guy, man, the biggest sweetheart, so encouraging. He sent me this email after he got off the road about three months after I gave him this album and he let me know how much he loved the music and was inspired by it. So when when I got that, I basically decided I have to try and like record with this guy. So I did. I set up a date. Jerry, unfortunately, had a surgery scheduled. And, and so I got him for one day and then the other day he couldn't do because of his surgery. So... <laughs> I have Jerry Jamat on half the record. He's the original bass player from The Thrill Is Gone with B.B. King. He's mm. the original bass player on Think with Aretha. I mean, oh. seriously, just a, a master. And then the other guy is Kenny Gradney, who is a bass player for a group called Little Feet mm. and uh, also played in a group called Delaney and Bonnie. Uh, so Bonnie Bramlett and all that. So Eric Clapton played with that group. <clears throat> he was with them in the late 60s. In fact, if you ever watch a movie called Festival Express, which is about the Grateful Dead and the band and Janis Joplin and Buddy Guy and Delaney and Bonnie touring all over Canada using the CN uh, Railway. Mm -hmm. uh, he's in there. It's great to see him. He was good friends with Bob Weir, and you get to see them uh, in their late 60s glory, uh, mm -hmm. you know, have, having a great time. But anyway, so Kenny is awesome. I was honored to have him on. He plays on half the record. I actually play upright bass on a couple of the tracks. Cool. Um, the Motor City Horns are on it. And then there's a keyboard player on it, too. And the keyboard player also is just equally um, amazing, Mike Finnegan. And Mike Finnegan, I last saw uh, on stage playing with the great Bonnie Raitt at New Orleans Jazz Fest before we got shut down. But Mike Finnegan played with Jimi Hendrix uh, on recordings. He played with Crosby, Sliz, and Nash. He is one of our great treasures as far as... Uh, Hammond B3 and, and piano, and he's a great singer of blues and soul and R&B and stuff. And so anyway, total pleasure to have him on it. And um, I'll tell you also this, in the because we talked a little bit about Rick Rubin and Shangri-La. Well, the piano that's actually used on the recording is Richard Manuel, who was the piano player in the band and singer. It was his piano that was used in the studio to record on my album. So that now sits in this place in California called Ultratone Studios. And it has the top off and is generally used for just recording, but it has been on the road and all that. And I feel really like some some extra mojo was sprinkled on uh, the album by having the, uh, yeah, the spirit know. there. Somehow. Yeah, exactly, That's man. Cool. So. Nice. Well, I can't wait to hear it. I hope that someday... I mean, I know you, you know the options. You could do Patreon to raise money, which is a, a weird way people are Doing, you could do Kickstarter to, to do a, here, buy my record. I know that you're uncomfortable with these things. But. You know, man, uh, of course, there's a fear of the unknown. There's also a real want that we're not going to have to disseminate and take these alternative routes that actually, when things open up more, we'll actually be able to get back to things as we knew it a little bit more. Because, yes, I know, but I don't know that it's actually effective in terms of creating stuff that's sustainable. You telling me that about Patreon would have been the same as somebody 10 years ago saying, you know, you need to get on this thing called Spotify because it's how people listen to music. Because you're right, it's how people listen to music. But actually, if I had stayed off of it and forced them to only be able to consume it through ways that were more beneficial to me, it might be more beneficial to me as an artist to do that. So I'm not so quick to throw my support against the latest and new ways because I'm not convinced they're actually set up to 
to benefit the artist. And until I'm more secure about that, I hate to be that cynical, man, but I, I have to kind of evaluate the systems that I'm buying into because, yes, I want to get my music out there. I want to do it in the way that is best for the artist in this time. You want to make a living playing music. That's And I want to help others find yeah. that path to be able yeah. to find something yeah. sustainable for it because it benefits us all. Because otherwise, you know what, man? I can go back to the working world. I can find something where I make money and sit at home and only play guitar in my practice room and don't share it with the world and don't have it do anything. I think that's a waste, I, you know, and so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally selfish and that's what people want. But like, let's say it already exists, man. Fender and Gibson, these great guitar companies, their most expensive custom guitars, they're not going to musicians. Musicians can't afford it. Yeah. Doctors and lawyers and people that don't know how to play those instruments don't put the time in, pay for somebody thousands extra dollars to throw keys at shit, to put cigarette burns and things. They call it relicking because these people want to buy an instrument that looks like it's actually bore the battle scars of somebody playing it and making it their own. And the thing is, it's the biggest falsehood and I have no respect for it because, yep, the artifacts that are most important to the musicians that should go to them, nope, they are co-opted by people with money. And, of course, it's like everything else because if you have money, you can totally bypass anything morally. All right. We're going to do one more song. I, I, I have like a gazillion questions I was going to ask you, but I feel like we could talk for another two hours and I can't do that to the crew. Who's the worst part is when I get stopped and I have to hear like the last statement I made in my head and just like, wow, that's really a crabby and heavy too. Because it's not untrue, but I just feel like I'm I, I'm wearing I'm wearing my ship, chip on my shoulder proudly today. And uh, maybe it's just this whole pandemic thing and, and coming out for an interview with that. I normally try and be a little bit more cheery and okay. not talk about this stuff. Rather, you know, but... The last album was called Real. You're just being real. That's but I. That's how I'm hearing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I just don't want to be the uh, unpleasant curmudgeon. No, this is, what, this is what life is like right now. I get it. I can sit here and tell you about my sad year too and it's yeah, uh, in the next hour, John Pomerito shares his. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he, he keeps it to himself and talks to his therapist. That's what I probably should be doing. You're, you're my therapist right now, though, because oh, I'm on unemployment. So it's free. Yeah. Tell me and, about your mother. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> what would you like to do for a, a final track before we uh, bid you adieu? Man, uh, is there anything you want to hear? I'm, I'm probably not going to share any of the newer stuff. You so do the newer stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there is a lot more new stuff. It's a full album, but I just feel like that's enough of a taste till I can maybe use that as a reason to come back on your show when I'm ready to get the album out. Yeah, so. let's do that. Um, well, I want to bring up one thing that I, not necessarily that I, you know, I take this as it will. I, I saw a video on Facebook that you had reposted of a kid singing in the backseat along to one of your songs. And I wonder if there was another ever similar moment in your career where you just felt like, wow, I had an effect on others because this Dude, song reached them. You know what? That's actually not the first one of this song. So this, what you're talking about is my song, Gone. And yeah. I would say probably, not that I've ever had a hit or anything, but this is probably by far the most... Um, far-reaching of my songs, and I think the nature of it is the melody's catchy, the form's real short. So after putting out the album, I got a bunch of videos of people's kids singing along and being attracted to that. And it's like, so it's A, adorable, B, for somebody that plays this old, dated music that doesn't seem relevant to my generation or other ones that are close to mine, it is so beautiful to see the connection with young kids. And almost like I was talking about The Voice, it's like the thing I'm most proud about doing on The Voice is exposing this generation that doesn't hear the blues and stuff to blues. Do I think it's the penultimate that they're getting their exposure through some 
white guy on NBC that's playing it? No, but it's better than nothing, and hopefully it makes them be curious to go out and search and listen to Muddy Waters and listen to Robert Johnson and listen to Freddie and Albert King and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is what it's about because it, what it's doing is introducing something that I have a great love and appreciation for to people that somehow just don't even see it. And to me, that's crazy because... Ray Charles, Louis Armstrong, the things I was talking about is being influenced by the blues and bringing it into, you know, the common culture too with these blues artists. They are like so important to me in my perception of what is uniquely American in our culture and what's important to uplift. So it's like, it really makes me sad that most people know of Louis Armstrong through watching When Harry Met Sally and hearing a couple sound bites. And it's like, to me, he was this great ambassador that helped break down barriers in terms of race and social status and brought people together in this country and used music at its best to do it. And so it's like, I view that as a beautiful thing. And uh, I think it's just a shame, man. He's, he's forgotten almost, it seems like, through, through a lot of younger people. So, you know, I think we have a beautiful musical history and people need to maybe be reminded of it to keep the history alive because it's not going to be popular again. I get that. I'm not trying to make it so everybody listens to it, but like, geez, you should know who he is when you hear a little bit of it. I mean, it's like hearing a little piece of Mozart or hearing Bach. We should know stylistically and through those elements to identify those things sonically by what they are. I don't have to explain to you how to compose it. I don't have to make you identify a diminished or augmented or a minor chord or whatever that is. You know, you don't have to get into that to be able to aesthetically just understand the collective experience of what that is and it's representative of style. It's like being able to look at Monet and recognize that as Monet. You don't have to be able to paint it. You have to be able to look at the style and see in his way that that's what he was trying to do and identify that as a part of an important movement. Anyway, so back to Gone. Yeah, this is my most popular song. It's simple. I ask people to sing along with it all the time. And probably this is the song I play most, man, because uh, it has been able to reach things. So I feel blessed to, to write a song that is an earworm. It's been covered too, like professionally. Around the world, John. I don't know about how professionally, but yes, professionally <laughs> in like Sweden and Poland. And I mean, like I, I am constantly amazed that this is the thing that kind of uh, reaches past. And by the way, when I was on The Voice, my real album became a number one blues album on the iTunes blues chart for over six weeks. Yeah. So I mean, I... I uh, so. Years after I put it out, I never expected to actually see it surface in a way that it would be even more popularized. And so it was kind of crazy to uh, see in that span. I mean, I think I had uh, over 144,000 downloads in a week for that thing. So, I mean, there are people out in the world that know it. And I've actually had this weird experience of traveling to places I've never set foot in before <laughs> and playing it and seeing people sing along and know the words to my song. That is that is probably one of the coolest things I've experienced in life. So there you go. All right, brother. I expect you to sing along, so warm up those chords. Me, me, me. <laughs> you, you, you. <laughs> gone, gone, babe, I'm gone. Oh, Lord, got to keep moving on. I'm so tired of waiting so long. Babe, I'm gone, gone, gone. Here now, mama, don't you treat me right. You smell like liquor, you've been out all night I do my best to keep out of sight In the morning maybe I'll be gone Gone, gone, babe, I'm gone Oh Lord, got to keep moving on I'm so tired of waiting so long Babe, I'm gone, 
Hey Jack, don't look back The train left the station on a one-way track Spend all your days in a whiskey shack You'll be drinking till you're gone, gone, gone Gone, gone, babe, I'm gone Oh Lord, got to keep moving on I'm so tired of waiting so long Jack, don't look back The train left the station, it ain't coming back Spend all your days in a whiskey shack You'll be dreaming you was gone, gone, gone Gone, gone, babe, I'm gone Oh, Lord, got to keep moving on I'm so tired of waiting so long Sing with me. Gone, gone, babe, I'm gone. Oh, Lord, got to keep moving on. I'm so tired of waiting so long. Babe, I'm gone, gone, gone. One more time. Gone, gone, babe, I'm gone. Oh, Lord, got to keep moving on. I'm so tired of waiting so long. Babe, I'm gone, gone, gone. We're going home. Babe, I'm gone, gone, gone. Oh, babe, I'm gone, gone, gone. So awesome. Leif Elsadi's gone on Acoustic Alternatives. Leif. Thank you for the stories and the songs. John, thanks for having me, man. And again, I, I hope to be in a little more cheery mood as things open up and I get out of here again. So, uh, do it again, yeah. you know, maybe not unimportant things to talk about, but um, I look forward to the next time I see you, brother. They're all important things to talk about because one of the things that I was hoping to accomplish was to really to call light on how to support people who are making great music and not making a living making great music. And that's, I mean, I didn't even intend for you to go where you went, but you did. And that's okay. Thank you. I mean, I, I, the problem is I don't have the answers, right? I'm just no. kind of part of this and realize it's not working to sustain it. So I wish I could tell people how to do it. But it seems like those options are getting fewer and far between and we have to be aware of how to do it. Uh, so I guess to address that real quickly, if people didn't get it, you need to search for ways that you actually do directly support the artist. So of course, go out and see live shows. Of course, if you're watching streaming shows and you can, do donate directly to them. But in terms of streaming... 
Realize if you use Spotify and streaming ways to do stuff that it is for your convenience, not for the support of the artist. So don't be under the illusion that because you listen to somebody's stuff, you're supporting them. That's about as good as, well, A, our adage that moral support doesn't pay the bills, or B, thoughts and prayers in these days. So no, these are real people. We have a real fiduciary responsibility to put our economic support behind things we believe in so people can flourish and keep those sectors happening. And yes, it's real responsibility. It's not some lofty thing to sit there and talk about. And no, your tax dollars do automatically go to things that kill people and cause war. They don't automatically go to art. They don't automatically go to things that are important for culture. In fact, that's pretty much litigiously and politically been legislated out of stuff. And so you need to actively support the arts. You'll be in the minority when you do, but hopefully you'll feel good that you're doing it. And somehow we have to fix the inequity between streaming and what people get paid for that. And the worst part is I'm just not sure that's going to happen. Like all these things that we wish there was a little bit of time of like non-moral corruption of, the problem is... People that have money get into anything that's profitable and control it. So there isn't any real love and artistry happening at the core of it. It's actually people co-opting things that don't have that. That's really scary. It is. Thank you for your insight. LaithElsadi.com. Yes, sir. Or, or Laith Music. Both actually. Laith Music was the one I remember. Too. So both work. Uh, when I was on The Voice, I wanted to make sure I had both because, of course, I wanted to own my own name. So they just all feed to the same thing. So if you type in Laith Elsadi, it'll, it'll actually switch to Laith Music. So if you're a fan of that, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, L-A-I-T-H-M-U-S-I-C. I also, until we start to open up from home, I'm going 8 p.m. every Friday night mm-hmm. onto Facebook Live. Uh, it's through all my Facebook pages, but I guess the main source would be the uh, band page I have. So that's facebook.com slash L-A-I-T-H-A-L-S-A-A-D-I. Please support Leith, and thank you for supporting in any way you do. Just watching and listening to Acoustic Alternatives, and Leith, great to see you. Oh, great to see you, John. Peace and love, everybody.